0: will be in Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Some of you will remember the presidential election in the year 2000. It was an incredibly tight race, got to the end, and they didn't announce a winner because they had to do a recount. Uh, It was that close, and the recount focused on the great state of Florida, and that was the infamous hanging chads, as they couldn't figure out how to count some of these voter cards, but it was days where America hung in the balance. Nobody knew the outcome, and it was actually a very chaotic time. As you watch the news, there was chaos. There There was crisis and the news anchors and the reporters were were looking for some sort of calming perspective, some sort of source of hope in this time, do you know who they turned to? They turned to historians. In fact, there were two historians who were commentating throughout this entire election on public television. And the commercial networks began turning to these historians. In fact, Peter Jennings, who was a news anchor at the time for ABC, a longtime news anchor, said this about that time. They, speaking of the historians, take the lightning and they process it through the national history, resulting in greater confidence for the people. They turn to history. In our current crisis, in this current pandemic, we turn to history. We look back in history at a time of crisis in the very beginning of the world, here in Genesis 6, to find comfort, to find hope, to find perspective in the midst of what we're experiencing. And we answer a most important question, what is God's plan to save a world in crisis. What is God's plan? God's plan centers around two commitments. That is his relentless commitment to good and his relentless commitment to rescue. First, his relentless commitment to good. Verses 11 to 12 paint a very, very dark picture of, of the condition of the world in Noah's time. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Two words here, two very descriptive words describe the situation, corrupt and violence. Corrupt means to disfigure. The image of God in people was was disfigured. The word violence, the word violence is, it means the cold-blooded infringement on personal rights or on people's rights, motivated by greed, motivated by hate, and oftentimes accompanied by physical violence. Now, we don't have to do a whole lot of work to see that our day today is very similar to that day. We have corruption. We have violence in the 21st century. And we could name off a number of things that would fall in that category. I think it's very easy for us to relate to the situation here in Genesis six because we know corruption, we know violence in our culture. The next verse is the one that's shocking. The next verse is the one that is a little harder to understand. And that's verse 13. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then to verse 17, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, what's the first reaction of your heart when you hear those verses? Maybe it's good, finally, God. Finally, you get rid of those bad people that are ruining our world and ruining our country. Or maybe your heart responds on the other extreme. That's not fair. God, how could you do something like that? Everybody has their right to figure out what's right and wrong to them. Who are you to judge like that so harshly? That's the exact reason, maybe you say, why I won't worship a God like that that is vindictive and vengeful and cranky and explosive with his anger or maybe you fall somewhere in between those two extremes. Those two extremes are polar opposites, but what I want you to see is they come from the same heart condition or the same place in the heart. And that is a place of self-focus or self-preservation. Right, the first extreme, good, finally, God, get rid of those bad people, that, that is selfish, that's, Get rid of those people that are infringing upon my right to have a comfortable and happy and safe life. The other extreme, God, how could you do that? That's not fair. That's too harsh. That's also selfish because that's saying, God, how dare you infringe on my right to have a happy and comfortable life according to what I think is right. As long as you view these very difficult verses from your perspective, you will hear them describing a cranky, explosive, short-tempered, vengeful, angry God. But if you will put yourself in God's perspective and read those verses from his perspective, you'll actually hear about a God who is relentlessly committed to good. Now, you say, how? Help me see that. I want you to imagine that you're going to go to the beach and make a sandcastle one day, and so you set out to the beach. You've got all your tools, your shovels, your buckets, your molds, everything. And in your mind, in your imagination, and maybe you've even sketched it out, you have this beautiful sandcastle that you're going to make. And you get to the beach early in the morning, and you start to build this sandcastle, and you work all throughout the day. You get to the mid to late afternoon, and you finally finish this sandcastle. And you look at it when you're done and you think, this is even more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. And you step back and you look at that sandcastle and you enjoy it and you imagine people walking up and being able to look at it and enjoy the beauty of it. Now imagine two kids that decide it would be funny for them to run through your sand castle and kick it down and they do that how would you respond well let me tell you how you wouldn't respond you wouldn't say no big deal You know, those kids have just as much right to that sand that I do. If they think that ugliness and unkindness and cruelty and destruction is okay, they have a right to that. They have a right to decide what's right and wrong. No big deal. Listen, if you wouldn't respond that way, which of course you wouldn't, then why do we expect God to respond that way when his world is being destroyed and disfigured? You see, God's a God who is committed to good. And because he's committed relentlessly to good, he's therefore committed to purging what isn't good. He's committed to purging what isn't good in his world. Now that leads to a second question. If God is so relentlessly committed to purging what isn't good in his world, then why is there still bad and evil in his world? Why is there a pandemic currently killing thousands of people? Why are there terrorists Why are there still mass shootings? Why are people still hurt by violence and corruption? It seems like in Genesis 6 here, it seems like God brings the flood very abruptly and very quickly. But verse 3 of Genesis 6 tells a very different story. It says, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That verse comes right after the description of evil and violence and corruption in God's world. And what that means is that it was 120 years before God brought the flood. He delayed purging the corruption and violence, purging what wasn't good for 120 years. That's a long time that God delayed. I mean, imagine back to the sandcastle story. Imagine you step back and you're enjoying the beauty of the sandcastle and these kids run through it and kick it down. And instead of beating them up immediately, you step back and you watch them go back and forth across your sandcastle, destroying it even though you're warning them over and over to stop and do the right thing. God delayed his purge. He delays purging what isn't good. The question is why? Why does he delay? Why doesn't he just purge evil and violence immediately? Well, the flood story in Genesis 6 and the judgment that comes through the flood is a foreshadowing of the judgment that will come at the end of time when Jesus returns. And one of Jesus' disciples, his name was Peter, wrote a letter and and described this connection and described why God delays in his judgment or delays in purging what isn't good. 2 Peter chapter three, verses five to nine. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's referring to the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's the purging of what isn't good. But... Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The question that is being asked of Peter that he's answering here is, why is God delaying? Why is God delaying the purge of evil? Why is Jesus delaying coming back? And Peter's answer is, God delays out of love. God delays because he wishes that none of his children would perish, that all that he has set his love upon before the foundation of the world would repent and turn to him. God is a God who is relentlessly committed to good, but what we see here, and this brings us into the next commitment he has, is God is relentlessly committed to rescue. And we see that rescue begin to unfold In verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. God's commitment to rescue is seen in this covenant he makes with Noah. God's rescue plan centers on a covenant. Now, what is a covenant? It's an agreement. It's a contract, similar to a contract that you would enter into or sign with someone. The maker of a covenant obligates himself to self-imposed commitments that are conditioned upon the recipient of the covenant, in this case, Noah, to the recipient's faithfulness. So the question is, in this covenant that God makes with Noah, what are God's commitments and what are the conditions upon Noah? Well, God's commitments, there's two of them. That is that he will purge the earth with the flood and that he will preserve Noah and his family. Now, what are the conditions on Noah? Well, there's two conditions on Noah. And that is that he would build the ark and that he would enter it. And this covenant would go into effect only if both parties did what they either committed to or were asked to do. So the question becomes, could God count on Noah to do his part and could Noah count on God? Right, if if Noah doesn't build the ark, then he and his family perish. And not only that, but God's purpose to bring a rescuer from the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 would fall apart. Could Noah count on God? If God didn't bring the flood, then Noah would waste years of his life. His service, his obedience would be in vain. God's rescue depended on him keeping his commitments, and God's rescue depended on Noah's faithful obedience. What I want you to see here, this is so important, is that God makes this covenant with Noah. He doesn't make it with Noah's family. He doesn't make it with his wife, his sons, his daughter-in-law. He makes it with Noah. Now, the blessings that would flow from Noah's obedience and the blessings of this covenant would fall upon Noah's family. But God was making his covenant with one rescuer. And that was Noah. And that's the way that covenants work in the scriptures, in the Bible. God makes a covenant with one man, Noah. He'll make one with Moses. He'll make one with David. And all of these rescuers were faithful to fulfill their conditions of the covenant, but they weren't perfect. Ultimately, they would fail. We'll see with Noah in the the ensuing chapters that he begins to fail miserably. And that's because no human deliverer could ever ultimately bring deliverance or rescue. God's covenant with Noah is a shadow of the new covenant that God makes with Jesus Christ. Now, God's covenant with Jesus Christ, what are God's commitments in the covenant that he makes with Jesus Christ? Well, there's two, to purge sin and to preserve the life of his people. And what are the conditions on Jesus in that covenant? There's two, that Jesus would live a perfect sinless life in obedience to God and that he would die in obedience to God that he would fulfill the covenant, both the positive side of how he's supposed to live and then also the penalties for not fulfilling the covenant. And that was his death and resurrection. Jesus was completely obedient. Again, important here to understand in the new covenant, God makes his covenant with Jesus Christ. He doesn't make a covenant with you. And you should be really thankful for that. You say, why? I'll take you back to my early days as an engineer. I, got, I graduated from grad school and uh, started as a civil engineer in a consulting firm. And engineers, uh, in early in your career, one of the goals is to become a professional engineer or a PE and to get your PE license. And to do that, you had to study and take an exam. I never got to that point. But one of the jokes was that the only benefit you got from becoming a P.E. was that you could get sued. I said, what do you mean by that? Well, once you became a P.E., you could stamp and sign off on drawings. that would deliver to the contractor so that the structure, the building, whatever it is, would be built. If there was a mistake in the drawings, guess who was responsible? It was the P.E. who stamped him and signed him. Even if the mistake in the calculation was done by a young engineer on your team, it didn't matter. You were held responsible for those drawings. The client didn't care. If a young engineer made the mistake, you were on the hook. You were responsible for these drawings, ultimately. The reason why... You need to be really thankful that God didn't make a covenant with you, but rather that he made a covenant with Jesus. Is that means that Jesus Christ is on the hook and was on the hook for, for, for fulfilling the demands of the covenant. And he did it perfectly. He obeyed every last detail and demand of God's covenant to absolute perfection. This is what we see powerfully in verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, what was the all that God commanded? Well, look back at verses 14 to 16. He asked Noah to make an ark of gopher wood, a specific kind of wood, rooms in the ark, covered inside and out with pitch, 300 cubits in length. 50 cubits in breadth, 30 cubits in height, a roof for the ark finished to a cubit above, a door on the side, three decks. There was incredible detail to the ark. And Noah was obedient. He built it just as God had commanded. And because of Noah's obedience, his family was saved. What a beautiful picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Spelled out beautifully in Romans 5, 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Jesus fulfilled every condition of the covenant and by doing that secured all the promises of the covenant. That is the purging of your sin and the preserving of your life. Now, what's important to note, although I said that God didn't make the covenant with you, he made it with Jesus Christ, and that you should be thankful for that because you and I make mistakes every day, you and I disobey God every day. While that is true, the blessings or the benefits of this covenant do not automatically flow to you. Nor do they automatically flow to Noah's family. For Noah's family to receive the, the, the purging of sin and the preservation of life, for them to be saved, they had to trust Noah. And they had to get on the boat as we'll see in chapter seven. In the same way, in the same way your sin is purged and your life is saved or preserved only by trusting Jesus Christ. Only by personally placing your trust in faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, you will be purged along with your sin but through faith in Jesus Christ, your sin will be purged and you will be preserved for eternity. Out of curiosity this past week, I Googled the following question. Who will save the world from the coronavirus? Now, you can imagine what popped up at that question. I read one article That talked about the U.S. central bank rate cut as the, the measure that was going to save the world or save the economy. And they quickly said, but maybe that won't quite work. I read an article. This was written by a design trends forecaster that talked about the coronavirus itself saving the world. She said that the coronavirus is an amazing grace for the planet that would temper out our greedy consumerist appetites and jet-setting habits. I read another article that said, forget the government, America will save America. I read another article that said, only Mother Nature can save us now. Four articles, four different rescuers. The U.S. Central Bank, the coronavirus, mother nature, and the American people. We live in a world that is in crisis. It's not the first time, as we see in Genesis 6. It's not the last time this is going to happen or that our world's going to be in crisis. But what this has done currently is put crisis not just in our world, but in our hearts, There's a virus that is incredibly more deadly, incredibly more destructive than the coronavirus. And that's the virus of sin. That's the virus of sin. The question is who will save the world from the virus of sin? Who will save the world from the crisis? sin. One man. One man, Jesus Christ, who has come out of love to purge your sin and to preserve your life. The question is, as the question was for Noah's family, will you trust him? Will you trust him? There is one thing that this virus has done across the board spanning culture spanning uh, your likes your dislikes your uh, spanning everything the one thing this virus has done is taken away your comfort it's taken away your comfort and for many you're you're asking for the can I can I possibly survive for the next 2 months with these comforts that I had gotten so used to taken away. One of the things that's being exposed is our attempting to find comfort in the things of this world. And they've been stripped away for a season. And in this season, I will tell you that there is a comfort. Whether this is another month, two months, three months, there is a comfort that is wider, that is deeper, that is more real than anything that this world has to offer. And that's the comfort of Jesus Christ. You will find that comfort if you will turn to him and if you will trust him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are in crisis, not just our world, but our hearts are in crisis. As comforts have been stripped away, as purpose has been stripped away, as we're working from home, as some of us are unable to work, as our bank accounts have dwindled, as our paychecks have dwindled, potentially our job has gone away, our hearts are in crisis. And yet, God, you are sovereign. You have great purposes for us in the midst of this pandemic. Father, in our crisis, would you help us to come to understand that there is one rescue from crisis and from the ultimate crisis of our sin, and that is Jesus Christ? Oh, Father, would you turn our hearts to Christ? when we find comfort in Christ and forgiveness and cleansing and removal of our guilt. Father, I pray that years from now, that some of us would have the testimony that in that pandemic was the time that I really came to know Jesus Christ. Father, we trust that you're doing that work now in our midst. Would you help us to trust you? And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.